want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read a passage from Luke 14, and then I'm going to go to Ezekiel 34, and I'm going to read a couple of a couple of passages there in Ezekiel 34. So if you'll find those two places, and I am going to make reference to Luke 15. And so if the Lord leads us that way, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to go to Luke 14, Ezekiel 34, and back to Luke 15. And um, it was just something that God has really put in my heart and my desire to share with you. I wanted to begin by just letting you understand that there is um, such a conflict that has always raged. I don't want to say within the house of God or the church, but I believe it has raged in humanity. And that conflict that has raged in humanity has basically been um, stirred up and instigated by the religious um, the religious are always those people that are striving to uh, present themselves before God in a sufficient manner. And they have, they have worked in their own effort and in their own flesh to do that. They have feverishly just tried to perform to the best of their ability. The Bible says in Galatians that there are these religious people that even make a good show in the flesh. That they look really, really good. They have made incredible strides to become the type of people that they are. The Bible tells us as well in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days there will be a form of godliness. But the people will be denying the power of God. And so just imagine that as well, that in the last day's church, you're going to be basically overrun with a form of godliness. And, and so you have this form, or the, it's not so much a formality, but it's just an outward looking thing that looks godly. And when anybody looking at that looks at it, they would say, that looks godly. And we might say, you're a godly person. You're a godly woman. You're this and you're that because of what we see on the outside. But inside of that church in the last days, they are denying the power of God. And so it just shows that from the beginning of time to the end of time, religion has been running its course through this world. From the very inception of the beginning when Cain was offering his religion to God was offended with his brother Abel and Abel's acceptable sacrifice, what did Cain do? He killed his brother. He killed his brother because his Cain's way of religion was not acceptable to God. But Abel's way of religion was acceptable and Cain was fueled with this wrath. And guys, that was a type that would continue throughout throughout all of the generations of man. And we would see that playing itself out through wars, through national calamities, through strife among various religions of the world, to even the division that happens within the same faith that would believe in Jesus Christ, where there's such a hostility and there's such an attacking that is going on even among brothers because of the religion that gets in it. I believe one of the greatest tragedies that has occurred in the United States is that we have been more conditioned by the tradition of religion than we have in allowing the Holy Spirit to be able to produce the type of church and the type of environment that God wants to have in his house. 
We are led more by tradition than we are the Spirit of God. We are more concerned with the flesh and our appearance and what people think about us than we are in our spiritual freedom and our ability to come before God with great liberty and not worry or be in the fear of man, but only have a desire to express how much I love and adore God. And so the flesh binds people up. The Bible tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus wants to give us this liberty. And as soon as any man or woman comes into the freedom of the Holy Spirit, it is the nature of the religious to bind that person back up. To make fun of them, to be suspicious of them, to to bring attention to them in a way that they never wanted to have this kind of attention. And that influence of the religious begins to cause those people who are free to shrivel up or maybe put themselves back into chains. When it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, therefore stand fast in the liberty of Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody put you back into bondage or into chains or into tradition but live in the freedom and the freshness of the Holy Spirit. I told you last week when I was preaching about grace and faith and how I said that faith works by love. And perhaps the problem of our day today is not a lack of faith, but it's a lack of love. There's a lot of faith that is going around in Christianity today. But if there's not love, then faith cannot work. And so when, when I say that, Peter gave us in his epistle that our faith is supposed to end in love. That's where it ends. And not just brotherly love. It's supposed to end in love. Because if in our growth in Christ, in quote the religion of Christianity, and we're growing and we're adding to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and to temperance meekness and to meekness brotherly love. If we stop right there, we are simply going to be religionist. We're going to be much. We're going to be the modern day Pharisees that are greatly hindering the work of the Holy Spirit in the last days. I have looked at churches. I have been to churches all over the world. I have preached in churches all over the world. My spirit has grieved with the things that I've seen, as well as my spirit rejoicing in the things that I see. But I'll tell you, one of the things that has, that has grieved me and provoked me so much when I consider the house of God is I consider the need and the demand for the believers of God to truly be free in love. I believe we need a revival, not to keep Marxism out of America, but that we might have a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit in the house of God. I can tell you this, 120 people came out of an upper room and they turned the world upside down. They did. And, and from that, there was an explosion of conversions. 3,000 people were brought into the church in one day. And just a day or two later, another 5,000 people were brought into the church. And so very quickly, within a couple of weeks, the, the church had grown over 10,000 people that had been brought into God's kingdom. And they were having a profound effect upon the area, upon Jerusalem. And the people watched them. And, and, and the effect that the early church had was not the effect of religion. Because something different was happening. 
This wasn't Pharisees and Sadducees that were just, you know, turning over a new leaf in life or embracing this new, this new doctrine of Christ. But these were people, men and women, who had been born of God and they had come into intimacy with the Lord and God was moving through their life. And the people, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that they were being watched by the people at their liberty and their, and their grace that was on their life. That they moved about the city and they had favor with people and as they were going about the city. They were just praising God. They were praising the Lord. They were happy. They were joyful people. They were going from house to house, eating and drinking. This was before there was, quote, Baptist and Pentecostals and Methodist and Lutherans. It was just people that saw Jesus raised from the dead and ascend into heaven and just said, praise God, we're saved by the blood of this man and we're not saved by our own works. They were just so thrilled to be saved. And so they loved one another and they had one another and they were going through the city just spreading this love. And every day people were being added into the kingdom of God. And then you begin to see it in the book of Acts. You begin to see it, the pressure of the religious. The religious were working their way into the new church. The religious were working their way into the council. The religious were trying to bring in their demands and their stipulations. They were trying to put Moses in this way or put Moses in over here, bring the law in here. And they were trying to corrupt the house of God. And wherever Paul would build a church and leave, then the lawyers would come in behind Paul and they would make the people suspicious of Paul and they would bring bondage back in and they would bring tradition back in and they would bring law back in and they would bind up the people of God till you would begin to find over the generations, you would begin to find man-made systems and man-made leadership and man-made committees that would grossly corrupt the house of God from its original liberty and joy to just move freely in the Holy Spirit and magnify Jesus Christ and compel men everywhere, come in for the Father wants you. And so this is what's happened over the years. And I believe that it is our duty, I believe it is our calling to preserve the house of God. I believe it is our duty and our calling. It is, it is one of my chief motivations as, as a follower of Jesus Christ to keep the, the deadness of religion away from the house of God. To keep the spirit of religion away from the house of God. To fight it. To fight it. To lay myself down if I have to and die for it. To be claimed one thing, to be made a laughing stock, to be gossiped about, to be slandered about, to be crucified. I'm willing to do it so that the house of God could continue in the freedom and the liberty of Jesus Christ. This is a fight that we have, and it's a fight that we must fight. And I believe that this fight is upon us in these last days. And I, I was saying this to you as a church, what are we going to do? You know, we had the hippie revival in the 70s, the Jesus movement. What are we going to do when there's another Jesus movement in, in, in this century or this decade, I mean, in this season of our life? What are we going to do when there's a Jesus movement and the woke culture's coming in and, 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 and activists are coming in that have burned up cities or, or whatever it might be and or have revolted against the established authority and, and now they're, they, they've come to a dead end with their woke culture? They've come to a dead end with their movements and they've come to a dead end and all that it promised is not fulfilling us. Is there anything else? Is there something? Just like the hippies did in the 70s that this drug culture and this love culture did not take us where we thought it was going to take us. It's brought us to a dead end. Is there any other answer? And that's where Jesus stepped in and said, I'm everything you've been looking for. 
And so what are we going to do when this, this culture today that, that is woke begins to come to the end of itself? And they're, they're saying, is there anything else? Because I've, I've, I've ridden this. I've run down this road and I've run into a brick wall. It's a dead end for me. Is there anything else? And we're able to offer them Jesus Christ. And then maybe God begins to move in our cities and God begins to move in our nation. And, and we actually begin to see people that have so marred their life. They have changed their sex. And they're starting to sit by you in church. But before they are all, quote, koshered Christians and, and fully discipled Christians, they're, they're just struggling through this, not understanding anything about Christ or anything about the Bible. They don't know our songs. They don't know Amazing Grace. They've never heard of Jesus Christ in a way that they're hearing about him now. But they're coming looking for the truth and they're looking for God. And they smell like pigs. They smell like the world. They smell like corruption. They've got filth on their life and they begin to come into our churches. What are we good religious people going to do then? Is our life true or are we just religious? Because religion will fight that. Religion will want to do something about that before it allows it in. I was just writing a few things in my notes and I wrote these things down. The brutality of the religious, they wait, they watch, they set up the opportunity to prove why love is wrong and judgment is right. The religious love judgment more than they do mercy. But they have to be careful to wait for the right opportunity. So they look for the fault and look for the mistake and then want to throw love away and let's judge them. And if we don't judge him, we'll pervert the whole church as though the Holy Spirit is such a weak God. They will point out to the church why lost men cannot be saved and why saved men are not saved enough. That's the religious. They will be the ones demanding those who are fighting for their life and seeking to trust in Jesus to be thrown out of the church until they first get everything right and they are in a better condition to worship with us. In other words, get the smell of pigs off of them. Bathe them before they come in here. I will admit that there must be a separation between light and darkness. I will admit that there is not to be any fellowship between light and darkness or the sons of God and the sons of the devil. I will admit that. But it is God who makes that separation. And it is the light in you that makes the separation. It's not your religion that does. It's the light. It's not because it, it, it's not because so much that you can't be with them. They don't want to be with you. Because of the light, it's too bright. Truth is too hard. It's too searching. Though there is to be this separation, what do we do when we encounter someone that has badly fallen into sin, that have so destroyed their lives, they have inflicted themselves with all types of miseries, even sicknesses or diseases. Your discernment has proved right. You have evidence of their error. What do you do now? You lay your life down so they can live like Jesus did for us. You lay your life down. These religious people say they love God. These religious people say they love them. But what gross love this truly is. 
How different is this love from the love of Jesus? They'll even worship in the same building, thinking that you're going to hell and never lose a night's sleep over it. That's the religious. But the lovers of God who are in this building that know that your life is in trouble, maybe even in danger, that there might be sin in you or a false confession in you that you really don't know Jesus, then they spend sleepless nights praying for your soul, caring for you. That's the love of God. The man that the Holy Ghost has matured is a broken and a humbled person. I read something yesterday. I I wish I would have written it down, but I didn't. It was something C.S. Lewis says, whose mind is like light years away from mine. If you want to know how bad a bad man really is, just tell him to be good. And you'll see how bad he is. Maturity comes from the fire, not the books. It comes from wrestling with God, not with people. It comes from realizing your own wretchedness. To the point that you can look down on no man. No man. People with no love are no fun. They're no fun to be with. Churches with no love are no fun. And I know that that seems heretical to some people to use the word fun in church in the same sentence. But I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I think we should be joyful people. I think we should be happy people. I think we should enjoy the presence of God. We had, a, we had a crazy time at my house last night watching LSU. It was awesome. Awesome. My sons took their shirts off. Woo, woo, at the end of the game. I'm like, this is American football. What are you doing, you know? People shouting, jumping up and down. Grown men jumping up and down, hugging each other. It's wonderful. And I could just picture I've, I've, that, that in some small way, it must be like that when we enter heaven. And all the people so joyful you're there, jumping up and down, welcoming you. And the church ought to be that way. Enjoyable, fun, delightful. People intimate with each other and helping each other and caring for each other and praying. It's not just coming to church and looking for a seat and going through the motions. But it's just really enjoying the people of God and, and enjoying God and that's that's what's so important. So in Luke 14, it came to pass in verse 1, <clears throat> as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, <clears throat> that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. He had, he had fluid in his life, congestive heart failure, things of that nature. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him and healed him and let him go. <clears throat> I think it was important that Jesus let him go. You need to get away from these people as fast as you can. <clears throat> and Jesus answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? <clears throat> and they could not answer him again. To these things. They, they just couldn't answer him. And so I think about that. And I think about. You know. I, I know I've preached this here before. And I know I've illustrated this to you before. But if you could imagine. If, if I could pull a chair up. To that door over here. Is there a loose chair? Dana's that loose chair? If you, if you could just do this. I just want you to see it. And, and you've been through this. Some of you are new here. So you haven't seen it. 
But this is, this is kind of the way it's like. Joe, sit here. Joe swole up. Not with muscles, but with fluid. All right? <clears throat> He's dying. And there's nothing doctors can do. And all of you are Pharisees. You're the religious leaders. And let's invite Jesus. Let's invite him over. And so they make sure you read it. They're all there. What? Just what y'all are doing. Watching. Because we want to get Jesus. So how can we get Jesus? Well, let's put a man in front of him on the Sabbath day. Because there's no way Jesus can overlook him. We don't care that the man dies. We can't do nothing to help him. But let's set him up. So they invite Jesus and Jesus is not that I'm Jesus, but I'm going to pretend. So they invite Jesus to come in and they set him right there when Jesus walks in. Right there, right off the bat. Jesus is confronted with a man who's dying. And the religious could care less. They're just watching Jesus. What are you going to do? Jesus knows this. So he says, I want to ask you a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they couldn't answer him. And he knew those guys. He said, you get an ox that falls in the ditch on the Sabbath day, you're going to pull it out. I know you. So Jesus touches the man and he heals him. And he says, get out of here because they'll kill you. They'll kill you. And he gets him out. And Jesus stays and deals with him. Thank you, Joe. He stays and deals with him. And I want to know, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Does the fear of man paralyze you from doing what Jesus would want to do? Or what Jesus would do? So I want you to look at this in Ezekiel 34. And I want you to see something that I think is remarkable. Because truly this is the burden of God. In Ezekiel 34, he says in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? That convicts me. I want to feed you. And I'll try to tell you what you want to hear. I want to bring to you what God, I believe, has put in my heart to say. Verse 4, the diseased, you have not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty you've ruled them. Verse 6, my sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill... Yes, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth. And not one of you did search or seek after them. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. 
I'll bring them out from the people. I'll gather them from the countries, he says. In verse 15, he says, I will feed my flock and will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord. The Lord God, I will seek that which was lost. I will bring again that which was driven away. The lost are those that just wandered. They just wandered through life, didn't want to get in trouble, didn't want to get this far away from God, but I've just found myself so far from God, I had no intention. It just happened. And the religious says, serve you right. But God says, no, I'll come get you. And then not only is it those that just wander away, but those that were driven away. Those that were taken away through deception. Those that were taken away through manipulation. And not only that, I will bind up that which was broken. Those that were afflicted or hurt or wounded or suffered. And I will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will feed them with judgment. Does this not sound like Jesus? Does this not sound like Jesus when he was reading in Nazareth? From the book of Isaiah, when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And to heal the sick and to bind up the broken. And set at liberty the bruised. And to go preach to everyone the acceptable year of the Lord. Does Ezekiel 34 not sound like the ministry of Jesus Christ? So why, for God's sake... Are the Pharisees so bent out of shape when you find Jesus around sinners? I told you hundreds of years before I came, this is where I'd be. And this is who I'd be with. You think I was just going to spend my time in your synagogues? And sitting around, quote, holy men with a form of godliness that have no power in their life. Who go through the earth land and sea to find one disciple and make them twice the son of hell as themselves who shut up the kingdom of God on the people of God that would come in you think I'm going to be found with them I told you I'd be with the broken I'd be with the sick I'd be with the sinners that's where I told you I'd be so why are you so shocked when you find me with them why are you so amazed when you see me eating with sinners and why were the sinners so compelled to Jesus Christ because he was the only one demonstrating truly and sincerely the heart of the Father for the people. And that takes me to Luke 15. And here's Jesus. He's sitting down with sinners. And here come the religious. Right? The religious come and they begin to murmur. And they begin to complain and they begin to whisper. This guy accepts sinners. He accepts sinners. What would you do? What would you do if you saw me in a restaurant with a group of homosexual men having lunch? How shocked would you be? How can the pastor do that? Wait a minute. The Bible says if any man calls himself a brother and lives an ungodly lifestyle, don't eat with them. But we've cut ourselves off from the world 
And we've cut ourselves off from the sinners and the nobleness of godliness that we just expect them to come to our churches because we have church at 1030 on a Sunday morning. But wait a minute. Ezekiel says, I have to go get them. Some are driven, some are crushed, some are wounded, some are abused. Some have turned to immoral lifestyles because of the abuse they've suffered from the religious. And I need true ministers that will go out there and let them know this is not the way the Father is. You didn't suffer at the hands of God. You suffered at the hands of men who pretended to be like God. But they were not. And Jesus as well heard the heart of those Pharisees. And he tells them three parables. The lost sheep. And if you had a sheep that got lost, a lamb that got away, what would you do? You would keep the 99 in a safe place and you would go search for the one. And when you found it, what would you do? You would throw a party. You would celebrate. Call your friends over. There's not enough parties in the house of God. And then he says to the parable of the lost coin of an elderly lady who probably desperately needed every dime that she had, lost, lost some money. And so she tells her friends, I've lost some money. Please help me. I'm going to search the house for it. She cleans everything out and then she finds it and she finds it and she celebrates. And the story that I really want to come to is a story about three characters, a father and his two sons. And you know the story so well. But I'm just going to tell you how it strikes me. Because the father is God. And the two sons are his sons. They are his sons. And they were both really, really bad sons. One knew it. And the other didn't. And they both stunk. And one knew it, and the other didn't. So the youngest son comes to his dad and says, I'd like my inheritance. I'm tired of living here. I want to go. And he does. And he, and he goes into a foreign country. He buys prostitutes. He, he buys everything he can. All the things. Wine, women, everything he could get. Spends all of his money and a famine hits. And he's eating the, 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 or would eat the sop of the pigs. Because that's where he is. That's why I was referencing the smell of pigs. And he's tending to the pigs and he's in the slop of the pigs. And the food of the pigs look ap- looks appetizing to him. And he comes to himself. Repentance. Comes to himself. He gets a right mind. And he realizes... I don't have to live like this. I don't have to be here anymore. I know my father. I know his house. I know the way he treats his servants. I've lost the rights to sonship. But I'll be a servant. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. And I'm going to go and I'm going to repent to my dad. And I'm going to ask his forgiveness. And I'm going to ask him if he'll just hire me on as one of the servants. That's, That's all I deserve. And so he comes home, and as he's coming home, the father sees him off in the distance, right? A God who runs 
And he's running after his young son who's come back home and smells like pigs. And without a bath and without discipleship and without being appropriately attired with the right behavior to be around the dignities of his home and his family, he throws himself upon his son. There are many stories as to why the father would run to the son. One of the theological stories is because the men at the gate, who were the judges, knew that the son had left and that he would be coming back to do more damage to the family name and they would not allow him back in. That could be true. I do know this. That if the older brother had seen the son coming home and got to him before dad did, he'd have never made it to dad's house. Because that older brother would have gone out and lashed at his brother and told him similar things that people get told almost every day by religious people. You think you can just live like that all of your life And then have a little change of mind because times got hard. And I wonder, had there been no famine and had you not spent all of your money, you'd probably still be buying prostitutes. No, you're not sincere. I can see it a mile away. You stink. You smell. And you're going to come back home because you ran out of money? And now you're going to come dip into my inheritance? I don't think so. Do you know how bad you hurt, Dad? Do you know what you did to the family name? And you think you could just come waltz back here and come home like this? All of that was in that brother. You're going to see it. And I'm sure the dad had an idea. If he gets to him before I do, he'll destroy him. So the father runs out to meet his son. The father throws himself upon his son and puts nothing on him but a robe and a ring and shoes because the robe is identity. You're not my servant. You're my son. And you will not come home to be a servant. You're home as my son. And the ring is authority. I reinstate you in my house with authority. And the shoes are freedom. I do not forbid you to come and go. I trust you like I would any son. You're free to come and go. And they go into the house and they kill the fatted calf and they invite the friends and they throw a party. They're dancing. It's good to dance. They're celebrating. They're loud. It's good to be loud. Because the people outside the house could hear it. Everything that was going on in the house, they were celebrating. So the older brother shows up. And he's asking somebody, one of the servants, what's going on? 
Well, your brother's home. Your dad killed the fatted calf. He's celebrating. And the older brother sulked, was full of bitterness, that he refused to go in. And the father didn't invite him in. But the father went out to him. And he said to his brother, shouldn't I have done this? Do you not care that your brother was dead? And he's alive now? Do you not understand that your brother was lost and he's found? Should I not celebrate that he's come home? So I ask you this question. Who loves the father? Who loves the father? And I'll tell you who. The person who loves the kids, the children of the father. That's who loves the father. You could have gone to this older brother and you could have asked him, do you love your dad? And he said, of course. Sure, I love my dad. How can you prove that? Well, I do everything he asked me to do. I'm loyal. I'm faithful. Do you know I've never asked my dad for a thing? I've never asked my dad for a calf to party with my friends. I would never ask that from my dad to require something like that. I'm in the fields. I'm working. I'm overseeing the servants. I'm doing everything. I'm in my place. I'm up every morning reading my devotion. I'm giving my tithes. I'm going to church Sunday morning. Sunday night, I'm at prayer meeting. Wednesday night, I'm at church. Of course, I love dad. Of course, I do. I think he would have said that. And it reminds me of the church in Ephesus in Revelation. Where Jesus said, you've left your first love. You do all of these things. You do all of these works. But you've left your first love. So listen to this. That older son. Could sit at the table with his dad. And never notice. The hurt. And the longing. That his dad had for his son. And and perhaps. If he had. If he really loved his dad. He would have gone to his dad. And he would have said to his dad. Listen. I have duties here. I have jobs at the house. I have a lot of responsibilities. But dad, I can't help but notice your heart's not here. You're worried about my brother. And you don't know where he is. Dad, I love you. I love you, dad. And if you will allow me, if you'll excuse me, I'll go find him. And I'll tell him that you miss him and you want him to come home. That would have been love. That would have been love. 
And the dad knew. The dad knew. I heard there's a famine out there. I don't know what's happening to my son. I don't even know if he's alive. But I can't go to my older son and ask him to go find him. He'll beat him up the whole way home. So I'll just wait. And I'll look for him. And I'll long for him. And when he comes back, I'll be the first to meet him. That's the father. And so what son are you like? What daughter would you be? Oh, I love the father. You know, I see preachers and I see ministers. We're so into our knowledge. We're so into our performance. We love the duties. We love the idea of ministry. But rarely pray. father wasn't watching his oldest son work. The father was watching for his youngest son to come home. God's not watching you work. He is watching your works of faith. So I wonder like Isaiah, do you ever just get so close to God in the presence of God? Do you ever just get up in there with God so close that you hear the cries of his heart? Are you just a good son? Doing your duties as good as everybody else. But where's that one that's just kind of pressing up in there and you hear the cry of your father's heart and you say, Father, I'm right here. I'll go. I'll go for you. I'll do that for you. Do you are you do you have that sensitivity? Or are we just religious? Do we have love? Do we have anything more than brotherly love? Do we have agape love? And, and, and guys, don't be discouraged by that because the answer is the Holy Spirit. It's not your works. It's not, you can't even make yourself sensitive. It's, it's the surrender to the Holy Spirit who will begin to cry from the depths of your being to the deep of God. And you'll be caught up in the middle of it and you'll hear things you've never heard before in your life. And you'll be moved with compassions that you never dreamed that you could have. So what kind of people are we? Have you heard the Father? Have you heard Him cry for this generation? Have you heard him cry for the transsexuals? Have you heard him cry for the morally confused? Or do we just like to sit around and talk about how bad they all are? And how our world is just going down so fast. You want to spend the night with your father and cry for him? It's not heaviness like you would think. It's not a burden like you might imagine. Some of the most incredible experiences you could ever possibly live in. Do you see the burden 
of your father's heart. So I ask you this last question. You can stand with me if you will. Who loves the father? Who loves the father? Whoever loves the son. Whoever loves the son. And all of us are either prodigals are religious, and we both stink, and we're both bad, and we both need the Father's help. And I don't want to be a prodigal, and I don't want to be a religious. I want to be like the Father. I want a heart like the Father's. I want a compassion like the Father's. And I want the Father to be able to come and Share his heart with me. Not because I'm perfect. Wouldn't you love for God to just come and sit with you, Marshall, and say, I want to tell you what's on my heart because I know you love me. Wouldn't you want that, Charles? Speaking. Emma, I know you love me. I want to talk to you. We don't have much time. It's not about your works. It's about your love. Your love. Your love. You've lived long enough your way. You've lived long enough with a calloused heart. It's time to be spirit-filled. It's time to let the Holy Ghost come. It's time to let Him do to you what He lovingly wants to do and you will berate yourself in a good way. Why did I wait so long? This is so 